Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday, the 16th of the 9th. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary. Thank you. Excellent. This is one thing I wanted to, to touch on, Michael, before we get going into this. We've got a couple of pieces to talk about uh, here today. We've got Eamon O'Keefe talking about Finna Fall. We've got some stuff on the ICCL. We've got a little bit on Trump in the Middle East as well. But there's one thing I just wanted to open with, Michael. And I wanted to remind our listeners of the past of this show. We, during the early stages of the COVID-19 outbreak, went around, looked at some of the research, looked at the countries that were performing best, and repeatedly said on this show that we thought people should be wearing masks. Now, this was at a time when the WHO and the government were not only saying that masks didn't work, they were saying they could actively harm public health. And we said, based on what we'd read, that was nonsense and frankly we think they're lying to you and what's happening is there aren't enough masks and they're trying to protect the supply by ensuring members of the public don't buy them up until they're sure they have enough for medical personnel. Correct. And we took a little bit of kickback from some listeners about that. I, I received many emails from people who were just telling me that I was absolutely wrong on the masks and to be fair if a listener thinks that or if anyone thinks that they have every right in the world to think we're wrong mm -hmm. in the same way they have the right to believe anyone is wrong. Yeah, I got certain, there's a certain amount of oh, for God's sake, enough with the masks already. Yeah, you just Ma every week you're masks, talking about the masks. masks. Have you got shares in a mask company or something? For What's the thing with the mask? So I wanted to like, position the show in that place. Like We were there months before public health officials and we weren't saying this is definite. We were saying, look, based on what we've read and some of the research isn't great in some areas, on the balance of probability, this is the way to go. This is what we think. Also, I think, Gary, and this has been part of the way we have tried, I suppose, as two lay people to be reasonable in a, a discussion about this, was we both have just noticed, I think, in, when you read the research, the difference between, shall we say, we call it an engineer's understanding of benefit and risk and the medical science world's understanding of benefit and risk and you see this again for example in the in in vaccine development and timetables and the use of double you know double lines and double blind trials and things that we're not looking for a 95 percent certainty with five peer-reviewed papers with replicated results we're just looking for a reasonable argument based with the possibility of a certain amount of benefit. Yeah, and I said, as I said, some, re or some listeners did send in studies to us and kind of say, look, we think you guys are wrong. Here's other studies. And some of those studies weren't great. Some of them they had misunderstood. But other studies were legitimately did seem to show either little impact or in certain cases, slight negative impacts. Now, never, never glaring. They weren't going to kill you. They were studies that had to be considered as well. And we still said on the balance probability. So yeah. I just want to say, we have been in this space for months before the government. And as such, if the government is now right, we were writer. Yeah. Into that, I do want to just say this. Looking at the public discourse on this and the way some people in the public and in the media are now treating masks, all I can say is people seem to have lost their fucking minds. People kind of say there's no debate now. There can be no debate. There's only one side, which is patently nonsense. It's, it's a scientific and engineering question. There are always sides. And for months, 
experts are coming out and saying that, well, we don't, like, the evidence for masks isn't great, or we think they're of limited use. The WHO, when it changed its recommendation from saying you shouldn't bother wearing a mask to you should be wearing a mask, the consensus there was that they'd done that based not on scientific uh, changes, uh, new evidence, but instead done it based on political lobbying. Listen, it's there are, I'm sure, questions where you could say there is no debate. This is not a subject for debate. It's not a subject for... I'd have to say, even though, as you correctly say, we have been on the mask side for a while, but precisely because of that, I've been... I've spent a lot of time on online looking at study after study after study. And I have to say, Gary, there are a lot of studies out there which suggest that there is... that the 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 usefulness, say, of masks is essentially null. Some of those studies are fairly small, but some of those studies are pretty damn good, fairly solid. There were a couple of studies done in looking in Japan and Korea, and now, on the balance of it and looking at other things, the there was an extensive piece of essentially meta-analysis of, of all, of, of which looked at lots and lots and lots of different studies, which was done in Yale. And you, ha- if you remember, there was guys that was that was from the economics department and the medical department yeah. and the engineering department. It was a yeah, yeah, massive, it was yeah, yeah, I remember it. Yeah. Interdisciplinary. It was a really good thing. It also was very interesting in that it gave percentages, benefits, percentages, starting as low as twenty percent and going up to seventy percent. It talked about different kinds of masks and whatever. There is now. I mean. I, I, listen, this isn't up to the point, but there is actually now um, a, a body of opinion which suggests that masks are actually very useful in the wider population because they are, in fact, imperfect. That there is a theory which is starting to accrue some uh, some empirical uh, solidity to it, which is that because masks are imperfect in protecting us from viruses, they they act as a as a as a, a micro dosing mechanism. What does seem to be established fairly well is that the level to which people become ill is affected by the amount of viral load they're exposed to when they're infected. So if you just get a couple of little bit of virus, it, as opposed to if you're in the room with three people who are infected in a small room in a small space, and you 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 get a lot of virus. That the more viral, the larger the viral load that you you're infected with, the sicker you get. That the virus is because the membrane will admit a certain, but will limit substantially the virus coming in. That this microdosing is actually mimicking the process that you go through when you're vaccinated. So that, but leaving that aside. It's, it's simply not true to say that. And the problem is, I believe, okay, listen, you and I know that there are a certain number of people who are just not in the business of believing you. They have decided because there is something else nefarious going on underneath all of this. It's not really about masks. It's about control or it's about God knows what. But there are certain things. If there was a, not even a debate, but a because I, 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 and in fact, I, I don't think there should be a debate, because a debate is a rhetorical, a rhetorical theatre where people try to win, and that's a very bad way of giving people information. This should be a conversation between people who have questions, and you. So, for example, Gary, do you remember there was the, one of the things that you see constantly said is that you can you have a problem with oxygen, 
you can become hypoxic. But, for example, so there was that guy in Trinity. You remember that, what was he? He's a scientist, he's in Trinity. He was deplatformed for doing something. I can't remember what. Anyway, he, uh, he basically, he put on his mask and he spent the day going around doing things, even taking exercise, going running, and he constantly was with, con with a constant test on his blood oxygen levels to see if he would, in fact, become hypoxic. And his blood oxygen levels remained fine and stable the whole way through. I'm saying is that if you get somebody who is an expert in whatever the particular areas are to say, listen, is it true that this will happen? No, that won't happen. Is it true that this will happen? No, that would happen. Let people exhaust themselves asking all of the specific questions. Give them reasonable answers. Don't look at them like they're stupid. Don't condescend or patronize to them. Because you know what? The people that believe you are exactly as informed and as intelligent as the people who don't believe you. Also, don't stand there and say there is no debate on this. Everything is settled. When anyone who's paying attention can look at you and go, firstly, three months ago, you had no idea about this issue. Now, you have no idea about this issue. You have no fucking idea what you're talking about. No, you don't. So, this is, this is some sort of weird culture war thing for you. One thing I would actually like to, I must actually look to see any research, is if long-term mask wearing increases risk of um, strep throat, if not clean properly. But that is not, like, that's not a life-threatening illness. That's, no. Yeah, annoyance. But why, why I wanted to talk about this, anyway, is there was a thing there with... Um, Jennifer Camparella. And Jennifer yeah. Camparella is, uh, she's on RTE Radio. And basically she said that her show was going to do a bit of a discussion, an open discussion on 2FM about face masks. And she yeah. said, look, do you have strong opinions on wearing them or not wearing them? And, well, she got some strong opinions sent to her uh, from many people, mm -hmm. including, I mean, Regina Doherty got involved uh, a couple of Irish Times journalists got involved. I saw Sinead, or, yeah, Sinead Ryan from News Talk get involved. Oh, so it's the cream of the crop. I mean, Sinead Ryan, I, I've heard Sinead Ryan talk about financial matters and very well informed, uh, very clearly knows what she's talking about, puts it across together well. Every time I see her something, see something she said on social media, it's fucking moronic. But every time I've seen her in person, she's perfect. In this case, she she tweeted. I, I think she, I saw a tweet saying, "There is no debate. There's the, it's right that they should have pulled this. There is no debate. There are no two sides to this argument. Stop." But that's I mean, when you actually when you hear scientists talk about this. Or what? Who was it? One of the Irish scientists. I think it was Trinity Base was asked about the evidence on masks a couple of months ago, and he said that the standard of evidence was not fantastic in favour of them. Well, the line that we had for months was that who said that the evidence on masks was indicative of, that masks were less useful than useful, basically. That, and potentially, and the same people, I can't say for everybody, but I do know for certain for a number of people, the same people who today are incredibly gung-ho about masks on everybody and all the time are the people who a few months ago were, oh no who w, because everything the who was true said was true and every and since our government at the time mostly was basically a cipher for wh who positions 
government policy reflected what they said. They supported whatever the government policy was, and you just had cranks and awkward types like you and me saying something different, and that was because we were cranks and awkward types. Now you can't, you, you can't. I'm sorry, I can't take you seriously if you're talking about there is no debate when three months ago there was probably very. There was, you're telling me with a straight face about the evidence because WHO had told you that. But here's the thing: so we have journalists jumping on another journalist in a way that even a couple of other journalists found, shall we say, privately, a little unbecoming. It was odd, I thought, more than anything else. I mean, why particularly? It wasn't... Maybe I missed this, Gary, because I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention this evening when I was looking at it. It's not that she was advocating against masks or throwing her lot in with the anti-mask crowd or whatever. She was just saying, we're going to have... A radio show. Now, what I thought was very interesting. Now, there's a guy, and he probably wouldn't be known to the average listener. So I'll give you a little bit of a rundown. It's a guy called Seamus Dooley. Now, Seamus Dooley is a member of the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists. He is, in fact, the secretary of the National Union of Journalists, which, for those who find secretary someone who takes notes... Secretaries of large unions tend to actually have considerable amounts of power, as Stalin showed us. Yes. Not to imply Seamus Dooley is anything like Stalin. Stalin achieved things. <coughs> Go on. So Seamus Dooley said that uh, an open discussion on masks implies there are two sides. Might as well have a debate about whether it's okay to drive on the wrong side of the road or after six pints. Not all opinions have equal value. And he sent that both publicly and to D Forbes, who is the uh, head of RTE, the Director General. So D Forbes would effectively be uh, Jennifer Zamparella's boss's boss's mm. boss's boss kind of thing. But he, he, he is one of the heads of the National Union of Journalists, basically calling attention of what he thinks a, a journalist's misbehaviours are to, to the head of that company, which firstly I thought is not something a trade unionist would usually do, Michael. I wouldn't have thought so, no. But, listen, let's move beyond even the issue of masks, per se. Well, can I just, I'll just bring up one, one more person who I thought was interesting. Yeah. Susan Daly. Susan Daly is the director general, or sorry, the managing editor of Journal Media. So that's the journal.ie, Noteworthy, all of those ones. Yeah. She called this out and said it was disappointing to see this approach from the national broadcaster after a weekend where the journal.ie staff were targeted by anti-mask and the rest protesters. Now, firstly... Well, what's that got to do with any, the price of fish? Well, that's that's the thing. It doesn't. It's it's a pure appeal from personal position. It's, well, these people did something to us, so you can't cover them. To which I would say, that's not really how journalism works, is it? You don't get to go, well, I don't like those people. What I would also say is when they, she says that um, Journal.ie staff were targeted, one of the protests over the weekend did go to the Journal um, headquarters. I think it was the weekend this was on, Michael, wasn't it? Yeah. Anyway, I went to the, the Journal.ie's headquarters. But my understanding is there were no staff in the building. So at the, at the time, I saw a couple of people who had worked at the Journal mocking them for turning up to an empty building. All right. And now suddenly, because it's useful, 
Well, now they were targeting staff. Well, you can't have it both ways. If the building is empty, who exactly were they targeting? Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a it's a, it's a, a case of a, spe- a special claim. Susan Daly is a major figure in journalism. These are not yeah. individual like opinion columnists. To have one of the heads of the NUJ and a managing editor of um of a, like a major media group, yeah, basically go out and shit in your idea. As if there could be no debate, is uh, is kind of cultish, and that's my concern with this. Like we read the available evidence to us, admittedly not as medical professionals, which sometimes does limit your ability to comprehend certain studies. Like I couldn't sure. go through the methodology of some of the studies we looked at. Well, I could go through at a basic level, but I mean, when I saw the results, you just kind of look at it and go, "Okay, well, I don't have the training in you know, biology or chemistry to understand this, so I have to trust what's written," which limits it a bit. But at the same time, it was as much as we could science-based. This is not science-based. This is either fear or some sort of hysteria. And there are, there are reasonable questions that people are asking. Well, no, there's not reasonable questions now, Michael. There are no questions that can be asked, which strikes me as ridiculous and, to be perfectly frank, anti-science. When I say there are reasonable questions, there are questions that could have been asked in this kind of forum that were reasonable for people to ask. For example, children in schools are supposed to wear masks, right? For six hours. Is that practical? What kind of protection are you offering when you have children in groups that may not be ventilated? You have school buses. The school buses, by the way, there are school buses running. You know there was a bit of hoo-ha about school buses and social distancing? Mm -hmm. There there are 52-seater school buses running with 52 children on them, as we speak. Now, whether that's going to continue to be the case, I don't know, but that is the case that's happening at the moment. Efficacy of masks. What about wearing masks outdoors? I see lots of people doing this. I see people jogging in masks outdoors. I see jockeys riding horses with masks outdoors. Is that sensible? Is that reasonable? Is that necessary? I see journalists complaining about people not wearing masks outdoors when my understanding is that the current guidelines are that masks are not required outdoors. We saw the studies from China now, okay, pinch of salt, etc. But um, when they were looking, and they looked at many thousands of outbreaks, but that outbreaks that take place outdoors are very, very, very rare indeed. But listen, whether you think these things are, people are worried, people are concerned. And I think that there are plenty of people out there who, if they were reassured about certain specific things, like there's a guy, there's one, there's a guy on social media, who is absolutely rabidly anti-mask and is convinced that masks are going to kill us all because they become repositories for viruses and they become like hand grenades that when they're disp- because they're not being disposed of in the same way as you dispose of hazardous waste in a hospital, that they are sitting around and they're just like hand grenades waiting to go off and infect people. Now, I'm skeptical about that, but. People read that, and I think that's the kind of thing you could reassure people. You could give people reasons. Give people the benefit of the doubt that if you talk to them and give them reasons and explain things, rather than just a, a diktat, a fear, this has been done by fiat, that they will respond. I mean, also, if just from a, like a, a tactical point of view here, Michael, Yeah. if you want to force down any sort of dissent against mandatory masks... And you don't want any debate on it. Fair enough, whatever your, your view on it is, Grant. 
before this, there would have been basically a shouting match on 2FM, which might have been great radio, but probably wouldn't have convinced anyone either side. Yeah. But now we have high-ranking members of the actual journalistic infrastructure, like the NUJ, people in the back rooms, who actually have quite a lot of control about what goes forward, trying to exert pressure to remove a debate. Surely that looks worse. Well, yeah, and also, without going back to the same place that we always end up going, this is simply a manifestation of a rather troubling tendency amongst a certain part of the of the of the media world to increasingly regard certain areas as simply being over. This is not a subject for discussion. I suppose over the last number of years, one of the areas has been, say, climate change. Uh, you know, uh, so you end up in a situation where they coin the cha- the, the phrase a climate change denier, like you're a Holocaust denier. The idea of, of when someone says that and someone says like climate change denier or someone says anything and then says that that is an assault on science or that is being anti-science, it actually does kind of gall me for, for the very simple reason that to me being anti-science is being anti the scientific method, which is the idea that through gradual experiment, experimentation, theorizing and investigation into reality, we can piece by piece move closer to an objective idea of truth in relation to various physical phenomena. That, to me, is science. That is the scientific method. Always aware that what you're going to come up with is not the truth. But that's the idea. The core of the scientific method, the idea that this is a process, that there's never a point where you can stop and say, this is the absolute truth, means that if you believe in the scientific method, you have to believe the idea even if it is highly unlikely that you could be wrong about certain things. You could be wrong about largely anything because further research could come back and go, actually, it's just something that looks like that, but the actual mechanism is entirely different. So someone coming out and saying, I don't believe in man-made climate change, to me is not anti-science because the scientific method understands the idea of dissent. Coming out and saying that we are right and there is no debate and we cannot be wrong that, to me, is, is anti-science. Even if you, by the way, are right, and are, I mean, even if you can't prove it, are fantastically more likely to be right. The point where you say there can be no more discussion, there can be no more research, there's only one way, at that point, to me, I think you are effectively anti-science. And really, you only get that kind of thing, or people who wander around saying that there's no objective reality and therefore no objective truth and there can be no scientific method. They're really the only kind of science, anti-science people you get. Everyone else just disagrees on science, which is perfectly contained within the scientific method. Like, I don't, I think people who are against nuclear, like Greenpeace, are lunatics, for the most (laughs) part. But they're not anti-science. They just disagree. They uh, have a different understanding of the risk, reward. They have a very good understanding of the current level of scientific research into the area. But that doesn't make them anti-science, again. No. Well, shall we say it doesn't make them necessarily anti-science. No. That fact, that fact alone, doesn't make them anti-science. They may indeed be, but for all sorts of other reasons. I was actually, I was, I was talking to someone about this, and they were saying why there needed to be this a stifling of debate on this issue. And the basic idea that they didn't come out and say, it, but the basic idea was, well, if it was experts, that would be okay. But you know, if you start allowing the public to say things, they can say anything. And I was like, well. 
this impacts heavily on the public. Surely the public should be able to talk. I was basically making the argument that the media refusing to talk about things that the public sees as a legitimate debate, whether that's Brexit or immigration or anything, is a core component of why people no longer trust the media, because the media have become more and more gatekeepers. But it was interesting when he was discussing with me, he was talking about the old advice and how, well, we, we knew that was just there because they wanted to stockpile masks for medical professionals. And I was like, oh, hold on a second. Your argument here is that we can only let experts discuss this while also believing that those experts lied to you. And if we accept that they lied to us before, well, frankly, why should we not assume that they're still lying to us now for another set of perfectly good reasons? Anyway, I think I think people have lost their minds. This is no longer a scientific debate to most people. But Gary, come on, it hasn't been for ages. And we we, we talked about this before. I said to you that one of the things that was coming out, and we're, I'm talking, we're going back months ago here, that I found most sort of depressing about this whole issue was the way that the discussion about the response to COVID in Britain, in Ireland, in the United States had become football teams and that you could actually predict where somebody was going to be on the, the correct government response on the basis of whether or not they voted for or against Brexit, whether or not they voted for for Trump or they voted for Hillary, whether, you know, it, it was it was all football team it was football team uh, rather than any kind of considered judgment of what the sign of the, what the science or the data was telling you and now we've just reached shall we say the logical conclusion of that process i mean i would feel a little bit less aggrieved by this if like shade ryan she says there's no debate and shade ryan journalist therefore what she says on this is some, has some impact because she can push that view to thousands of other people if she wants to. Possibly tens of thousands. She's on a couple of different things. I don't think she has a fucking idea what she's talking about. Like, I don't think Sinead Ryan sat down, pulled out the studies, got to the end and went, well, I mean, the science is conclusive here. I think she has a vague feeling. And I don't think public health policy should be decided and public health debates on vague feelings. If she had done, I don't suppose, I don't imagine she would have come to the conclusion there was no debate. Because if you go through the, all of the studies, the one thing that strikes you is it isn't as it isn't as clear cut as perhaps I would like it to be. No, and I mean that I thought was actually really interesting when we started looking into it, and you see that well, there's far less research on the area than you would think, and then there's a lot more mixed stuff than there is, and that's why I think there was also sort of looking at how countries were impacted and trying to draw from that to a degree beyond the scientific studies because, I mean, there is a... I mean, I'm not saying there's no studies. There are definitely... There's a, like a fairly high number of studies, but just not as many as you would think for something as foundational as you know, do barriers over your, uh, your air inflow reduce these risks. And even the studies that you have, they're, they're probably the biggest number of studies that were done for, for influenza. Uh, rather than uh, for Corona, because obviously it's we're, we're, it's hard to do stuff when it's happening right now. I mean, there, there are studies being done, but even then there are discussions about you know to what extent are the influenza studies applicable to COVID and so on and so forth. So anyway, just repeating myself now, it, it, I would have liked the from because I had decided that on the basis of particularly the air study that the, the sensible position was. 
simply that for not a lot of loss, for a low cost, there was a reasonable expectation of a, of a reasonable benefit to wearing it. Not that it was going to be bang, this would solve the problem. Now, just one last little thing on the subject. One of the areas that is being, we mentioned this before a little bit, one of the reasons why some people are getting all hot under the collar about the mask issue is because of the area of compulsion, right? Mm. And ultimately, their concern is the relationship between the power of the state and the rights and the freedoms of the individual to behave in a certain way. That's That concern is being portrayed as being some kind of tinfoil hat concern. And I don't think it is. We have a constitution... And countries that we have a constitution, and countries that have them have them specifically for situations where you come under stress. And if it was, if you could just go into a into a parliament and pass a law where everybody was all head up about something, and you could take away the rights of the, from one small group of people or for a bunch of awkward types, well then you would do so. But the constitution goes, hold on, slow down, you don't get to do this. They're basically there because you realise the flaws with democracy. You know, the flaws with democracy and the pressures that come under... And that sometimes it's good rules. to be able to kind of go, now, lads, you're going to have to slow that one down. Yeah. Like, maybe you can do it, but, like, you know, it's going to take four months of planning. And you have to have a balance so that you... So eventually maybe you go before a bunch of judges, and the judges, insofar as they can be, are impartial adjudicators and they say okay yeah the state can do this but it can only do it up to this point because it's reasonable up to this point after this point it's no longer reasonable that the balance is against it that this is an undue burden or what whatever it happens to be i just i remember a, a little incident I, I i'm sure i mentioned to you before gary before the 2007 or i think it was an election there was a a debate on between a Fianna Fáil minister and his finnegal a opposition uh, spokesperson in the, and the Philip Fowler said something about oh well no, come on now you can't do that you're perfectly well aware there are constitutional issues and the uh, his, his the opponent said oh it's typical Fianna Fáil hiding behind constitutional niceties but you know what Gary it's constitutional niceties that keep us out of prison and away from the guillotine because sometimes democracies not just democracies, lose the run of themselves a little bit. And you need a break. You need something which will stop you. I'm not saying in this case that these people are right, but they, ha but the concern about overreaching power of a state is not an unreasonable concern to have. Uh, I think maybe they could, do the, they could do it in a different way, which I would find more acceptable, blah, blah, blah. But this is on the, all of this starts with a discussion about whether or not there's going to, the government is going to some way legislate to to restrict the right to protest. I mean, I, I think you're you're absolutely right, and that's actually one of the things I wanted to to discuss uh, today. But I think when we we talk about the pro protests and people say things like, "Well, we don't like the form, or we don't like how they're going about it," I think it is important to also consider the media situation. If we have a situation where you cannot have a public debate on this and people who want to have a legitimate public debate, either because 
you know, they may disagree that masks work. They may agree that they work, but that they shouldn't be mandatory. They may have any position in between, all of which are legitimate positions to hold and argue for. But if yeah. you can't argue for them, if the media said, well, we're not going to allow those views to be out there, I expect the protests both to grow and to get slightly more aggressive. Because it, it is very clear that the, there is effectively a decision here that, and I don't mean that, and this is something I think conspiracy theorists tend to be wrong about. They tend to assume that there is a group pulling levers and saying, well, you know, shutting down areas of conversation. Yeah. More usually what you get is there's just a general feeling to a question or an age. And you get a lot of people from a very similar social circle who are making the decisions and no one makes a choice. They all just kind of come to the same viewpoint and those views are locked out. There's no grand conspiracy. There's just people and social contagion of views, largely. But if you can't debate these things, then yeah, the protests become rapidly the only option available to you because you've no other legitimate outlet. But that's what I wanted to discuss. We saw after the anti-mandatory mask protests there, Simon Coveney started talking about how the government needed to have a discussion about the right to protest. Now, this didn't come up earlier. This didn't come up when there was the Black Lives Matter protests. Now, again, I said those protests were silly, so I feel the need to remain consistent and say I find most of the mandatory mask protests silly. I don't think people should be on the street protesting at this period. And I find some of the slogans and things used by the anti-mask protesters to just be aggravating or nonsensical. Also, just to parenthetically there, whatever opinion you have about masks, uh, unless you happen to fall into that category of people who believe that COVID is simply a fraud, a hoax, it doesn't really exist, slash, if it does exist, it's no more serious than a bad cold. But if you, unless you fall into that group, even if you don't want to wear a mask, you should be socially distancing. There is absolute unanimity across, and has been for the beginning, that one of the most basic and most effective ways of stopping the spread of the virus was to maintain distance. And that wasn't done. And on the issue of the BLM, I know what about her is never pleasant, and we on the right perhaps do more of it than we would like to do because well, I suppose we're on the shitty end of the media stick a lot of the time. It's very hard to take seriously people getting worried about uh, these kinds of dis irresponsible marches. When 6,000 people marched through Dublin because there was a police violence issue in, was it, in Milwaukee? I, I can't even remember where it was at this point. 4,000 miles away, an ocean and half a continent away. This ha uh, something happened, and six thousand people marched through Dublin and got complimented by senior politicians. So I mean, lads, no, in in the inimitable words of Ben, ben Shapiro, fuck off. No, and I, I will say this about the the mandatory mask protests: at least they are in the country that they are complaining about, and therefore have some ability to possibly impact change. Whereas the the BLM protests, I. <laughs> People who haven't been to America, and particularly haven't dealt with, let's say, American politicians, it can be difficult to understand, particularly in Ireland, where we really care what other countries care about, uh, think about us, way more than we should, by the way. But oh, we yeah, really care. More. 
Americans, particularly American politicians, do not give a shit. Like, they do not care. They are a country which is incredibly confident in itself. And so if Ireland has a protest, or France has a protest, or everywhere has a protest against American decision, they don't care. It doesn't bother them at all. Also, Gary, you're probably, as usual, being kinder and nicer about these people's intentions. I am very, very sceptical that any of the people who marched in Dublin did so on the basis that their presence was in any way, shape or form, going to change or form American policy in the future. It was a game of self-congratulation, of declaration of virtue. It was a kind of a moral masturbation through the streets of Dublin. Look how good we are, also, and how wicked America is. Let's face it, it's always pleasant to reflect about how wicked America is. I mean, basically, after the BLM, after whatever about the protest, after I saw the reaction to it from politicians, I basically went, okay, there are going to be more protests for all kinds of things, because this is now the standard that we have accepted. Yeah. And I... I'm just going to say, look, I don't think you should be protesting, but we have we have now accepted this. Politicians had a chance to come out and go, like, get off the street, lads. This is ridiculous. Even if you're right, get off the fucking streets. And they didn't. In fact, many of them seemed to be very happy to see the protest. So now we have protests. And frankly, I think politicians brought this entirely upon themselves. But what I thought was interesting, Michael. So Simon Kovny comes out and says... We need to have a discussion about the right to protest. The right to protest is a fundamental right of a democratic society. Some would argue that it's one of the most fundamental rights of a democratic society because democratic societies tend to care what people think. Mm. And so I went, you know what, Michael? I want to see what the Irish Council for Civil Liberties says about this. Gary, we're all on the edge of our seats waiting for their counter-punch. We have been perhaps unkind... To the Irish Council for Civil Liberties? No, 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 no. I may have said things about them that are perfectly true, but as Oscar Wilde said, you know, it's terrible what people go around these days saying about others that are perfectly true. And in the, you know, in the name of politeness, I perhaps should not have said some of the things I said about the ICCL or its board or everyone involved with it or, you know, that, that sort of thing. Or their absolute lack of commitment to any form of human rights. Yeah, or the fact they're basically just a bunch of upper-middle-class lovies who don't actually care about anything other than the things that are of interest to their latest dinner party, and that if they all walked into the sea, the country would be no worse off. And in fact, maybe substantially better off, because then someone could actually set up a council for civil liberties that gave a shit about civil liberties. Not that we're advocating people walking into the sea. I mean, I don't really have a view on it either, Michael. No, I, I'm taking it. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a position on that one, Gary. I'm against it. In all cases, though. Well, I, Gary, now you see you're getting. Oh, you, you always do this. I'd say, as a general principle, I don't think that. Would you say there are limited and specific ways in which that could be broken? I'm saying that there may be cases of which I have not considered, which have not been brought to my attention that could make me think in a different way. I'm, not, I'm, I'm unwilling to categorically state that axiomatically it is impossible that such a state, these things could exist. I'm, I don't want to go down that line, you know. Anyway, so, so I went onto the ICCL website 
And I did check what the, the press people had sent out as well. I didn't see anything there. I went onto the website and didn't see anything on the website. So I went, okay, social media. Maybe, you know, cutting edge news. Maybe that's how they're getting this stuff out. <laughs> and uh, 12 hours ago, actually, they, uh, they put up a tweet saying that, have you ever wondered about facial recognition tech or protests? And they're having this... <clears throat> Cutting edge news. Yeah. God, sorry. <laughs> They're having this, uh, it looks like a seminar uh, where they have the UN special uh, rapporteur on the right to protest and, you know, a couple of stuff like that. It's a very important, the right to protest, Michael. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't find anything where they responded to Simon Coveney saying that we'd have to discuss the right to protest and the limits imposed upon it. What I did find is they have mentioned the protest once. Now, at the protest... One person, a counter-protester, was injured. I don't know how. Some people said she was hit by a plank of wood in the head. Don't rightly know how. It's not really something of terrible interest to me. But it was one incident of violence in a march that appeared to include several thousand people. And the ICCL's response to the march today, after... This has led a government minister, a senior government minister, not one of those backroom lads that you wouldn't remember Simon Coveney, someone of relative importance, particularly now that he couldn't flee to EU Yeah, yeah. and their, their stance on this is Michael, we're very concerned about the assault on an activist in Dublin on Saturday, Gardaí have a duty to facilitate both protest and counter protest the right to protest never includes a right to violence against another in person and they shared an article which is from the Irish Times sorry, the Irish Examiner which says that some protesters are seeking to provoke civil unrest, and that's from the Gardaí. Wow. That is, that is their view on this. Now, I would also like to point out that the ICCL, their current big thing at the minute is spit hoods. They're saying that putting a spit hood on someone is so inhumane and degrading, it's potentially life-threatening, that it, it should never be an option. It should be totally banned. So that's the level of human right these people are operating on. And yet, mm. a senior government minister saying that we should investigate limitations upon the right to protest is is not only not a concern, but I'm kind of reading that as they tacitly approve of it. Well, the phrase in law is tacit consentere, who's, who is silent, gives consent. And this is actually like a point I wanted to talk about. And you, you, you know this, John McGurk actually had a good article on this in Gripped during the week, and it was on how you frame and how media frames protests. Because the people who go to the mo protests the most, for the most part, on the left, the right, the religious, the secular, and everything, they're mostly nutters. <laughs> okay. To be blunt. Like, there. They can be very, they can be nutters who are right, they can be nutters who are wrong, they can be nutters you like, they can be nutters you don't want anything to do with. But their dedication to the cause they are protesting is so out of kilter with the average way of living that it's incredible. Well, can I, can I qualify that? I'd say this is true of the smaller protests. Well, that that's the point I'm going to make. It's the people who go to protests constantly. Like the people you see, and you know, there's three of them, and they're outside the GPO protesting an atrocity in a country you've never even heard of or you think is possibly some very high point combination for Scrabble. Well, you actually, I have kind of more respect for those people. 
rather than the people who come out and I mean, protest about something because they've seen it on the news. Well, I, 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 want to be, I want to be clear here. When I say nutters, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. Okay, naturally. Right, that right. That's what they do. They yeah. are involved at a level that the, the public can't get close to. But they are always the core of protests. They go to everything. On the left, or as I said, everything. But what you note is when it's a left-wing protest, or when it's a protest that the media approves of, they don't go and find those people, but they're there. And they don't say, well, that person who was screaming for the abolition of the state is representative of water charge protesters. Yeah. But when it's a protest that the media doesn't approve of, which tends to be something more socially conservative for the most part, but can be anything that runs against whatever is the prevailing view, then they find the nutters. Then they go, okay, well, that protest wasn't just a protest. That was a far-right protest. And here's an interview with five of the far-rightest people we could find. Yeah, and if they can't find them, it has been known from the slightly to make it. Gary, I was on a... I, I, I don't know, does this make me a nutter? I was on a... On a a pro-life march, you know, the one, the one, they have once a year in Dublin, or they used to have once a year in mm-hmm. Dublin. And I, I, I'd, I'd make the point, these were like 50,000, 60,000 people, so they're the bigger ones, you know, maybe less nuttery, we'd hope. Anyway, there was a photographer came in at the side of where I was walking, marching would really overstate what I was doing. And it was it, it was a moment of genuine comedy because I looked around me and there was a, it was a very sort of a diverse bunch of people. There was a large bunch of young Filipinos just in front uh, to my left. Mm. Just behind me was uh, a family, mother, father, four or five kids who were from they were from the Congo and they were they were they they were now on citizenship track that I've been talking to previously. There's a bunch of these very handsome, uh, uh, attractive young people, girls and boys in front of me. I think they're probably connected to youth defense. And there was a bunch of young Polish guys doing something sort of musical to their side. It, it was the, the average group around me, young, and it was, shall we say, multi-ethnic. However, Gary, there were two elderly nuns that we had stopped and were drinking had for a drink of water the other side of it. He ploughed through. He went through the family from the Congo, through the Filipinos, past the Poles, past these sort of preppy young types to get to the picture of the two elderly nuns. And I thought, yeah, because you, you can't have... It's like once upon a time, you couldn't have a... You couldn't have an election day in Ireland unless you had a picture of a nun voting. You can't have a picture. There can't be a, a pro-life march in Dublin unless you have two elderly nuns, and then probably an elderly lady carrying some large statue which is bigger than herself around the gaff, mm-hmm. or like a, a motorized shrine. <laughs> yeah, it was genuine comedy, and everybody around saw it, and we had, people were laughing at it because of that. Yeah, that's the thing. I, the problem becomes when the public realise you're doing that kind of thing, and Media does it all, generally. I mean, our listeners should suspect all forms of media, particularly us. The only difference with us, and this is, I think, is the difference. I actually don't have a problem with biased media or a media that has a particular slant. So long as it tells people it has that slant. What I think is the problem is media that presents itself as being totally unbiased, totally fair, 
totally disinterested while also pursuing quite particular editorial lines on things. Because that, I think, is it gives you kind of armour of I can't be questioned while also enabling you to push particular agendas or particular viewpoints. Yeah. Whereas with Crypt, like, Crypt is what Crypt tells you it is. And I think it's pretty consistent across that. It's why I agree with, like, 40% of it. Yeah. And I write for it. <laughs> but that, that, I think, is generally a sign of quality. Like, people write stuff, and I, I look at it, I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. And other times, like, yeah, that's great. I wish I would have wrote that. But there's a certain plurality of views, but you know what you're getting. Whereas, I, I mean, we were talking before in a previous one about how the NUGA, the National Union of Journalism, has a pro-life stance. Or, sorry, has a pro-choice stance and yeah, has since, I think, the 70s. 70s, yeah. And the people would never know that, and surely that is influencing uh, the reporters who are in the NUJ. That sort of stuff. I can't... That, to me, just strikes me as one sneaky, and two, eventually people will find out. And then it becomes a question of, well, what else are you doing? What else aren't you telling me? So just tell people, these are your views. And then, I mean, people know what you are, and then people can trust you or they can not trust you. But that's their own decision, and they're informed. Yeah, but the, the, the fact is, Gary, you, you said they can trust you, not trust They don't trust you. Uh, when the, when you, you survey people in Ireland... Uh, one of the few groups that are trusted less than politicians are journalists. But, and possibly what you're going to answer, the funny thing is, they trust the news. It, the, the polling results on this are, are legitimately bizarre when you actually look at the individual breakdowns. I did see a recent piece of polling that said that on COVID-19, Donald Trump is trusted by about 5% more than the national media. Yes. And that's the sort of result you look at and you sort of go... Like, you did that to yourself. Yeah, 40% of Americans trusted Trump and 35% of them trusted uh, mainstream media being MS, NBC, ABC, CBS and Fox or whatever they were doing. And, I, 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 and then they seem confused why people don't trust them. I, I don't know if you saw the article on CNN a while ago, Michael, and it was shared by one of the CNN uh, commentators about how Trump calling them riots was an act of political desperation. And I think he shared it without looking at what the image on the article he was sharing was, because it was a police officer standing in front of a building that had been turned into an inferno. Yeah, there's the other one, the, the CNN reporter saying, reporting live from the scene, saying that the protests had been fiery but peaceful, while behind him there were these industrial buildings in a conflagration. But actually, can we use this uh, actually, as an example? Just a moment. One of the, what should have been the most recent piece of news in what, what should have been a massive story has broken today <laughs> regarding, and I want to link this into this discussion, which is the fact that after the United Arab Emirates had decided to normalize relationships with Israel, and the Israelis had decided to stop their massive land grab in the West Bank. This was followed by the normalization of relations with Bahrain. It is now being muted that apparently Saudi Arabia is on the way to normalizing relationships, its relationships with Israel. Now, and the thing about all of this language is this, what this means is they all are now recognizing the right of the state of Israel to exist, which is something which has consistently not been 
true across the Arab world. Gary, can you remember off the top of your head, or maybe you have it in front of you there, the, 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 the Irish Times reporting of this? Okay, so when this when these starts these stories, the greatest hits started coming when it was just, you know, uh, the UAE and then Bahrain and as you said now Saudi. Although the Saudi king apparently said uh, about a week ago that they wanted certain things, uh, certain recognition of Palestinian land. So if they, it'll be interesting where they go on that. But the Irish Times, I knew it was going to be a big story because the Irish Times wrote about it and then went to Joe Biden's spokesperson for comment. Which is just brilliant. I mean, had had no involvement in this, that, by the way. No involvement that that takes balls. That's pure neck. I, I admire that. We are going to ignore this story so totally. We're not going to go to the ambassador. We're not going to try and contact the Department of State in, the, in Washington. We're not going to go to the office of the president. No, we're going to go to the campaign of Joe Biden, who has had nothing to do with this agreement. But that's how we do things over here. And then they, they did bring out a um, an article about three hours ago on the the new accord. So it's 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 wonderful, Mike, because you can it's like someone trying to take a toy from a dog and it's just pulling against you like a big dog and it just does not want to give you the toy. That's, no, no, I'm not no. no. So they, they start talking about the, the deal and they say in a development that is likely to be touted by the Trump administration as a major foreign policy win. So, can we just stop you there? Uh, in a development, okay, that's already... Just the rhetorical framing of the thing is just fantastic. Development. So it's just, it's an incremental thing, it's a small thing, it's a development. You know, in a developing story, police have announced they found a shoe that is likely to be touted so listen lads this is it's, it's going to happen like this we're just warning you now this is what they're going to do god almighty oh tout and the use of the word touted a tout is uh an informer a ticket tout in itself it it's somebody selling cheap goods somebody passing off the trump touted by the administration yeah they they may say this is a success. Yeah. Um, do you want to know how the Jerusalem Post described the signing of the Accord, Michael? Well, go on. Well, they open with a quote from Nahanyuhu, which is, Treaty could end Arab-Israel conflict once and for all. Oh. And then it says that he signed a historic and groundbreaking normalization agreement between with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, the third and fourth ever between Israel and an Arab state. Historic, groundbreaking. groundbreaking, so likely to be touted as something of a big deal by the Trump administration. Said the, didn't say the Jerusalem Post. No, Fle- they they actually seem to say this <laughs> may actually be a uh, and this may be thing, a big deal. This now this obviously this is the Middle East. Anything could fall apart at any time. Any time, absolutely. But at the rate this is going. And if this stays on track, to say that this could bring an end to the Israel-Arab conflict is not, as it would have been six months ago, a totally ridiculous statement to make. You're cert- For the it's first certainly- time in 30 years, there is not just movement, but substantial movement. And you have, you have Israel's friends or Israel's neighbours recognising its right to exist as a state, which yeah. 
historically haven't done. Now, yes, this is partially due to the rise of Iran. Uh, but, which is partially due to Obama's policy. Which is when we're going to start reading about this in the newspapers. It's going to be people <laughs> saying, well, you see, the Obama-Iranian deal by giving the Iranians a false sense of security led to the development of this deal as other states organically grew to counter them. Obama was playing, uh, what is it, 3D chess this entire time? Yeah, yeah. I'm wait- I, That article will be written, Michael, and you know it will be. Oh, it'll be written and it'll be published in Vox. Uh, certainly, and HuffPost maybe as well. And it'll eventually get into the comment section of the New York Times. There was actually a, um, an interesting thing I noted about the Irish Times article. It quotes Donald Trump, but it doesn't quote any of the other people. Considering that um, Benjamin, who is, again, the Israeli Prime Minister, was there, and you also had the Foreign Minister of the UAE, both of whom spoke quite eloquently about the deal. And it's just odd that... Um, it's, just, it's just the framework they're looking at things from. But the article does go on, Michael, and this, this is something I loved. Because this is what I was saying about trying to pull that thing from the dog. Like Several members of Congress and Trump supporters attended the ceremony at the South Lawn of the White House. Now, many, many people attended this ceremony. Yeah. There were... Uh, a great deal of American Jews invited to this. There were not just Trump supporters and members of Congress. There were many supporters of Israel and, in fact, the UAE from both the left and the right at this thing. This this is a major thing. Even if it doesn't work out in the end, it's the first thing they've had for decades. But then it goes to say, so many of them attended the ceremony at the Lawn of the White House, most of them not wearing face masks or exercising social distancing. <laughs> Because that's what history will remember. You know, when people are like, God, this ended that war. That's just decades upon decades of desolation and death and destabilization and terrorism. But, you know, at one point, people stood a little bit too close to each other. Yeah, in 50 years time, when they're, they're pulling the Trump statue down, they say, well, we've come across evidence that he was responsible for a potential major outbreak of contagion in the COVID, really, oh well, out, out, out it goes. Now we know that Donald has been nominated for a Nobel Prize, by Peace Prize, that is, by a member of the Norwegian Parliament, and they're all having little sniffy fits about it. Oh, for God's sake, Donald Trump! I mean, can you imagine Jimmy Carter and Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat? got a Nobel Prize for normalising the relationship between Egypt and Israel. If if Trump can pull off a normalisation with three Arab states, who knows? God, be, there could be, there could, Sudan might come in before November. That's four. The, the Carter thing is probably the nearest thing we've had to this. And yeah, Carter was uh, quite highly lauded for what he did. And this in some instances seems to be going further. Although, as I said... This is all in motion. We'll see where this goes. This could go nowhere. It could all collapse. Listen, back in the day when Slick Willie was doing his best to do a deal, uh, and a deal was almost done, except the Palestinians pulled out because of issues, I can't remember, the territory issues, but it was very close to the establishment of the two states. But since then, I mean, we're, it's just got worse and worse and worse. It's been bad, it's bad news. 
just to point this out, the, the Washington correspondent of the Irish Times, who is Suzanne Lynch, did once write an article that said, Donald Trump's political success is based on racism, which is a perfectly fine line for the Irish Times, but you can kind of, you can feel the sort of, we won't give you this. Like, it doesn't matter what you do. If this was any other president, this would have been one of, I mean, this would be touted as one of the largest American foreign policy wins in decades. And in many ways, a way to undo some of the damage that they've done to the Middle East in other ventures. <laughs> would be lauded. Listen, they hate him. And you know, they hate him. They hate him in a very, in a very modern way, actually. Because if you ask somebody who can't stand Trump to the point of insanity, you ask him to name a policy or a presidential act an executive order or a bill through congress that he's pushed or whatever you ask him to name something which was so horrible so heinous why is he so particularly wicked they always struggle to do it what they hate about him is that he is in a sense a perfect post-modern artifact there is it's hard to know if donald trump is either nothing but irony or he's completely irony free I mean, I did love the... Now, the Irish Times quote this, and you can tell they quote it in a sort of how dare he sense. But it says when he was talking, and someone was asking him about the Palestinians and if they would come to the table. And it doesn't quote it in the article, but when he talks about it longer, he basically made the point that if Arab states keep signing up to this, Palestine, uh, Palestinian people have basically two choices. They can sign on to it, or they can be left on their own with no allies around them. But he said that, well, you know, we're talking to them. Even Bibi gets tired of war. Bibi being Bibi Netanyahu. Yes. Who apparently, according to the Irish Times, laughed. Yeah, they, it's the aesthetics of him. It's the, the vulgarity, etc. they hate. It's got to the stage now that if Donald was to arrive onto the front lawn, on the south lawn or whatever, in the White House, and the skies were to open up, and a voice was heard, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. It would be reported the next day, um, inverted commas, God says Trump doing reasonable job. What's, what's the old saying? If he were to walk on water, they'd say it was because he couldn't swim? <laughs> yeah. It's got that. It is. It is. Did you see a couple of weeks ago where he came out and someone was saying in a poll his support with the military had gone down, and he said, "Well, the ground troops love me, but the generals they don't love me. They've got all these friends who sell them weapons, and they just want to keep." He basically gave a talk about the military-industrial complex, complex, yeah, yeah, yeah. and how these people were just warmongers, his own generals, and you could see this, like the media being like. But maybe military-industrial complexes are good. That's not... We... We we don't like... No, what are you doing? Stop confusing us. Yeah, and we, then I saw these wonderful articles, and they're like, Donald Trump accuses, like, honourable US military generals of warmongering, alleges arms manufacturers are influencing policy. And these just, how dare he say these things about the military? You've got you know, people going on MSNBC. You know, you've got these fine, upstanding, innovative, patriotic American companies 
like Lockheed or who are producing some of the world's finest peacekeeping technology, desperately struggling to stop saying arms dealer, arms I, manufacturer. I, I saw, I legitimately saw people who were like, has our military ever been so insulted by a commander in chief? And all I could think is, well, I mean, there was Eisenhower's speech about this. Well, yeah. Like, he had a bit of a go of it, and that was, that was a while ago, lads. He basically said, listen, lads, if you're not careful of these people, they'll take over the country. Uh, <laughs> it is, it's, there's a rich vein of comedy, but just to draw a line under it and, and, and to contextualise it, Saudi is making noises now. Oman is also making noises. They apparently just met Trump. Yeah, Sudan also. Do you know, Michael, um, how This many... is big good news. Do you know how many Arab nations have signed peace deals with Israel in the past 72 years? Oh, let me, hold on, hold on, hold on. Not Egypt. including the last. So you've, you've Egypt, Egypt, yeah. Uh, Jordan? Yep. Uh, Arab nations, you said. Arab nations. So not Turkey, because Turkey is They get Arab. sensitive about that. Oh yeah, and so do the Arabs. Yeah. I remember, I remember in one of my, you know, my cosmopolitan stories, walking through the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul, and I can tell anybody's out there, it's something you should try and do once in your lifetime. It's absolutely fucking incredible, Istanbul, the bazaars. And then we passed by this uh, two ladies who were in the full, complete black shador, the kind of thing you'd see from maybe Afghanistan or Iran, and. Um, I said to my Turkish friend who was showing us around, I commented that was unusual. I hadn't, we hadn't seen hardly anybody around wearing anything, women wearing any headcloth. And he looked, and Gary, you know the way they say his lip curled in novels? Mm. I'd never seen it done in real life, but he had a proper Ataturk moustache, and his lip curled all the way up to his nose, and he spat out of the side of his mouth, Arabs! <laughs> I thought, okay, and we leave it at that. Yes, yeah, so the Turks are, um, 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 Malta is technically an Arab country, but I'm not. Uh, I'm going to go with Jordan and Egypt. That's it. In seventy-two it. years, there have been two peace deals with Arab nations between Israel. In the last two months, there have been two deals, both of them brokered by the Trump administration. Actually, has it even been two months? No, I think it's uh, there was a few weeks between, and not even a couple of weeks between Bahrain and UAE. Um, I don't think it's two months. Not even two months. Well, let's let's say two months. Too. Yeah, it's still very impressive. Yeah, and and hopefully, and because you know what, it's not because it's Donald Trump, but because you know the Middle East is a place which tends to we would like all the people in the Middle East to be happy. And to live happy and prosperous lives at home. But also, it's true that sometimes what happens in the Middle East does not stay, unlike Las Vegas, in the Middle East. Oh, an important point when we say about um, treaties there. Those are the Arab states that recognize Israel's right to exist. Like, we're not on a high bar here. No, no, it's not a massively high bar. It's no, like, those are just oh, the ones that say, okay... Whatever about the, the, the exact borders and Palestinian lands, you as a state deserve to exist. We, we don't actually have, as part of our state, uh, sort of, what, what, what was it? what's the thing you have in a, in a, in a, an, or, an organisation? It's a document which says the things you want to achieve. 
sort of statement of principles or whatever it is anyway as the state there it's not part of their constitution that israel and the jews should be driven into the sea that's a classic which was i think ahmadinejad when he was president of iran yeah well look what iran has gotten themselves now yeah anyway i think you had time because it's all this is too exciting. And, and I, too yes, I, I think we should cut it there. We've been, these podcasts have been too long recently, as I'm sure the listener will agree. Too We're long and too, to too, too interesting. Down. Too exciting. Too much going I, on. What? We're Monday, so should, we should be, you know, when Monday, Wednesday, we should be back on Friday, will we? We will be back on Friday and then Sunday, as I have not gotten horrendously ill, which, as I see it, is a resounding rebuke to the idea that the gambler's fallacy is a fallacy. Anyway, Friday, we don't know. We may have... Uh, I'm doing some re- recording this week, so we may have a, a rather a good treat for, for for the listeners on Friday. Um, if we want to flag that or not, I don't know. Is it a pony? A pony? <laughs> it's very like a pony. But uh, I'm talking to, the, to An- Dr. Anthony Daniels tomorrow. I'll be recording with him. And we might have that for Friday if that goes well. He's better known, I imagine, to the listeners as Theodore Dandrimple. He's a fascinating man, fascinating career, and one of the most interesting commentators in the English language uh, press today. So anyway, until Friday, uh, mind yourselves, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All the best.